it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, August 17th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump has hired Steve Bannon, the executive chairman of Breitbart News, and reportedly solicited debate advice and maybe more from Roger Ailes, the Fox News former chairman. This is a campaign shakeup. Paul Manafort will retain his title as campaign chairman. But you just knew that someone with Manafort's background was going to run into trouble with the notoriously insecure Trump. No, no, no. It's not that Manafort has ties to an anti-democratic Ukrainian regime and Vladimir Putin. It's the hair. He has a thick, natural, lustrous head of hair. To Donald Trump, this cannot stand. So now we got Breitbart and Fox, eh, former Fox, running the show. This says to me that if Trump becomes president, he will elevate press secretary to a cabinet position. In fact, I think it goes beyond that. It finally hits me. Remember when John Kasich was reportedly offered the vice presidency and the pitch was, you'll get to be in charge of domestic policy and foreign policy. And then Kasich said, well, what's left for Trump? And the answer was, making America great again? No, that's not what's left for Trump. Trump wants to be press secretary. That's Trump's ideal job in the Trump administration. Just yelling and bandying with the press and having press conferences. Maybe also pollster. I've always said that if America, if the American public just offered him this deal, he'd take it. And the deal is this. All right, Trump, you go away. You go away forever. But we'll take one last poll. And in that poll, will rate you higher than Hillary. That is a deal he'd take. He does not want to be president. He just wants to win in the polls. On the show today, I spiel about the passing of, well, maybe not a legend, but certainly an icon. Prediction, you will tire of my impression rather quickly. But first, crime novelist Megan Abbott is here to discuss her new book, You Will Know Me. And at the conclusion of this interview, you will. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. 
The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Murder mysteries have been set in Manhattan, in mansions, on the moors, but You Will Know Me is the first mystery I could think of set on the mats, the gymnastic mats, which is actually rich, rich territory, fraught territory, in fact. Devin Knox is a 15-year-old phenom, her mother Katie, her father Eric, the house's second mortgage, and a hit and run for whom no perpetrator has been found. Strange things are afoot, literally, in fact. This is Megan Abbott's eighth novel. She came on The Gist to talk about her last one, The Fever. She's back again, going for The Gist double-double. Hello, Megan. Hi, glad to be here. Were you a gymnast? No, I had no athletic ability at all, um, which I think is why it fascinates me so much. Because people can't see you, and I know you're joining me by phone, but we've interacted in person. You are among the more we people that I've ever met. Yes, I have the height, but not the muscle or the determination (laughs) or the the, gravity skills. (laughs) So what do you find compelling about the sport as a subject? I always, you know, like everyone else, I think every four years I become transfixed. And I think for me, the first one I saw was Nadia Comaneci in in the 70s um, and early 80s. It was the first time I'd ever seen seen a young girl be so powerful and have the stage and sort of draw the eyes of the world and sort of be able to dazzle everybody, not through how she looked, but what she could do. And I think that's always stayed with me. And I think that these gymnasts sort of become this sort of marker of a powerful girlhood forever after. Unless you, not that they're not powerful, but the more you know about them, though, the more the scales fall from your eyes in terms of uh, just power and just a positive story. Absolutely. I mean, like like any extreme sport that you, like you reach Olympic levels at, the costs are immense. And I think particularly with gymnasts who start so young, these days they have to, and the effects of it on your body, on your spirit, you know, everything. Are, you know, there's a lot of gymnast memoirs, and they either go into the category of, yes, yes, gymnastics, or no, no, it ruined me. So. so- As a crime novelist, there are a couple things about gymnastics that seem compelling. Tell me if uh, these are some of the things that compel you. A, stakes. Anytime there's people wanting something so bad and that kind of tension, that's always a good backdrop to set a story on. B, you've got femme fatales and they seem vulnerable, but they really are strong. The third thing is innocence, although it's a weird kind of innocence or it's a surface innocence, but I know crime and um, murder writers love playing with that. So yes. do those drive you? Yes. No, exactly. And I think you've got the stakes, which is sort of the classic, not just even crime, but even specific to noir, you know, the sort of film noir tradition. The stakes are so high um, is certainly there. And the sort of, I think the femme fatale angel thing works in concert somehow because it's sort of the old crime tradition of the the two-faced person who can, who can you know, wear a smile and sort of hide, uh, hide a kind of nice in the hand is always is always really appealing and of course in a kind of black swan way with ballet you know female 
aggression and rage is particularly frightening to us now because we're just still not as used to it. Women aren't supposed to display anger or aggression or really ambition even. I mean, looking at this election, um, we don't really know what to do with it. So that's, of course, stuff that's ripe for a crime novel. Right. And another dichotomy, and dichotomies are, you know, you're always going to want to play with. It's that young and old thing that these gymnasts have because, in a way, they're, well, they have, you know, many of just by being gymnasts, it suspends puberty. And so that they're little girls, but they're so much more world weary and their souls are so much older than all the taller people around them. Yes, exactly. And they have, you know, they're much tinier, but they're also much larger. And they, you know, and they've had this experience of the extremes of life that the average 14 year old hasn't had. And it's just such a puzzle. They seem to have been through so much and yet never probably kissed a boy or been on the date because some of them, you know, aren't around peers at all. So, so I think that that creates this sort of, it's like a hothouse environment. You know, yeah. something's got to give there. Now, your last novel, The Fever, uh, ha- had a lot of similar themes. It was sort of about a hysteria that takes place in a suburban high school. I think, though, that that was at least reviewed. I read them both. That was at least reviewed more as a literary novel or a contemplation of a milieu. Well, I shouldn't say a milieu. A contemplation of a phenomenon with, you know, crime story elements. This is being taken as this great crime story that happens to be set against the world of gymnastics. Do you think that's fair? I do, I do, because um, in some ways, you know, my books always have crimes in them, but they, they take different forms, and it's sort of buried in the fever. But here, it really is in some ways a classic. Who done it? And Katie, the mother, whose point of view it is, is the sort of almost the Hitchcockian character, you know, the sort of domestic detective who's also, you know, feels under the gaze of the authorities. So in some ways, it's, it's much more traditional, um, which gave me a lot of room to do crazy stuff, too, of course. Now, Devin, your main character, well, maybe the, maybe the mom's the main character, but Devin's the 15-year-old gymnast. There are long moments when it seems like she's a cipher, and I know that that serves your purpose to withhold some information from us. But also, I mean, I think that there's something else going on, that she's probably a cipher to her mother and maybe even to herself. Absolutely. I think, yeah, well, I think first for, for a gymnast or anyone in that high-profile high role, you're seeing yourself from the outside almost all the time. So the notion of what's interior is probably pretty murky. And also, sort of interested, particularly with, with the parents of prodigies, especially if it's a sport prodigy. The parents feel so connected to the child because they have such a close relationship by nature, and they're close, close to the changes in the child's body. So was, I became really interested in that moment when you would no longer know. I read um, this interview with this golf dad, who's sort of like a tennis dad. He was really extreme. His daughter's a golfer. And he said he could literally read every gesture or expression on her face ever. He was so confident in it. She was 13 or something. And I started to think about that in relation to the book, about what would happen if you, for the first time, you see something that you don't know what it means? And it must be terrifying. Yeah, that part is in the book, too, where some mothers claim that exact thing, that they could read every child's expression. And Devin's mother, Katie, is at least admitting that that's not true for her. 
which might be a big step. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sports parents just do an endless inspiration for you in that regard because it is sort of like the moment every parent faces when they have to let their child go and become their own person has to be heightened to such a degree because there's the intimacy, especially with gymnasts, the intimacies of the body, you know, the skimpy leotards, worrying about breasts coming, you know, it makes it all the more, you know, far too close, really. Right. Okay, so I know what a red herring is, and I know what a MacGuffin is, but to what mystery or literary category do we put the fact that Devin lost two toes on her foot? And so she has this, uh, is it Achilles heel? No, well, maybe. I don't know. There, is this just an invention of your own, or does this belong to a broader category, the fact that this perfect or striving for perfection character has this mangled foot? That may or may not be her superpower. Yeah, it was irresistible. I originally, it was sort of pedestrian choice because uh, it came from the skater, Elaine Zayak, who had an uh, uh, injury to her foot, a lawnmower, and then her parents put her into figure skating, and it changed her life. And that was the thing that they told, you know, during, there was an old 2020 episode, you know, Olympic special or something about her, and she showed her foot, and it was very dramatic. So it was inspired by that. But then once I started the book, it became something else. You think in some ways, it's the sort of thing on which all the characters project some kind of meaning, you know, whether it's her strength or her weakness or both, or it's the parents' sins, or if it's the child's heart, you know, it's sort of everyone in the family seems to have different feelings about what it is. And so it sort of became this sort of shapeshifter for me. So maybe it is a MacGuffin. I think it might be. <laughs> oh, it might be a MacGuffin. Now, the brother is a fascinating character, too, because he is a likable younger brother who doesn't really ever give his mom or parents any trouble. But he has these dreams, these vivid dreams. And I know in The Fever, that was uh, your last novel where there was hysteria going on in a school and we had to ask if it was real or imaginary but what was your intent with those dreams yeah i wanted you know i wanted a sort of outsider he's sort of the outsider in the family you know he's he's brainy he's bookish he's obviously not the focus of the family and for him to become some kind of seer in some way that he can see things that they can't because he's the outsider but because he's so young you know it would come in other ways you know he wouldn't quite know how to make meaning out of what he's seen so it felt like it would come through his dreams or his responses to books or his imaginative life and you know in a family where you know it's all about the body he's all about the brain so the dreams are sort of his way of trying to trying to sort of make sense out of what's really going on in the home. Is there any part of the book that consciously tried to echo the rhythms of gymnastics? No, but I, I definitely write, try to write to a rhythm. So it wouldn't be conscious, but it probably is unconscious because I watched so much of it while writing it. And I read so many memoirs about, um, and this is not a diminishment of the condition, but how many gymnasts have OCD of some kind, how much uh, like beats and rhythms and sounds and, and how much of their life is about timing and, you know, getting these routines to down to the second. So that started to infiltrate my brain when I was writing the book. And the last thing is, I was extremely captivated by it, yet I have to say that the whodunit quality of it, I find no flaw with it. It just wasn't the thing that was driving my curiosity. And is that okay? I mean, are you disappointed that I say that? 
that's sort of my dream is that the book will work for both kinds of readers and, and for the readers in between. But, the, you know, there are a lot of crime and mystery readers who read, you know, 100 crime books a year. And they, they're reading for the, the whodunit. And you want to satisfy them. But I also want to satisfy for the reader, reader who's reading it for psychology and the messiness of family and the, and the knowing that there's, you know, that there may be an, an answer to the question of whodunit, but there's not a lot of answers to anything else. Uh, so I'm always hoping that I'll hit the sweet spot where where both readers come away feeling that they've gotten something. Well, you did hit the sweet spot and you did stick the landing. Oh, so congratulations. Great. Thank you. Megan Abbott is the author of You Will Know Me. Thank you, Megan. Thank you so much. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. And now the spiel, issue the first, the passing of John McLaughlin. My dad loved John McLaughlin. He was a Jesuit priest. He aided Nixon. He ran for Senate. McLaughlin, not my dad. Uh, McLaughlin then left the priesthood, got divorced a couple times. I didn't know much of that when I was watching him growing up as a teenager. The Sunday shows back then, maybe just to me, but they seemed boring. And then, after they were done, the McLaughlin group came on. It was fierce. It was feisty. In retrospect, it was largely unfair. It was definitely the most combative thing on PBS. I loved the McLaughlin group while never liking actually McLaughlin or really any of the members of the group. But I, I grew to love McLaughlin. And I realize now that he is in a special category of people, people who I grew to like in real life because of the impressions that Dana Carvey did of them. Along with McLaughlin in that group is also Regis Philbin and George H.W. Bush. McLaughlin served his purpose. I didn't even like most of the guests, most of the group, if you will. I certainly didn't like Pat Buchanan, Patrick J. Buchanan, Jay for Jubilant, right? <laughs> didn't care much for. Very well stated and very poignant also, Martin. What do you have to European. say? And I didn't even love the lone panelist who was there to represent both the majority gender in America and the majority political party. Well, up until the Gingrich Revolution. Eleanor, minority party, Cliff. <laughs> now, I did love Jack Germond. Jack Germond! Jack Germond died three years ago. Writer for the Baltimore Sun. Sometimes Chiron does. The Baltimore Evening Sun. I met Jack Dremond years ago when I was a young producer and he was out promoting his memoir, great title, Fat Man in the Middle Seat. I loved the way he looked. I loved how he didn't rise or rather lower himself to the hysterics of Freddie Barnes or Mort Kondracki, how Jack Dremond had the posture of a throw pillow. If nothing else, I watch the McLaughlin Group purely as a Jack Germond delivery vehicle. So therefore, I guess you could say, if not for his fellow panelists, Jack Germond would not seem so wise. Although there was the fact that he actually was wise. Here's an example of how his insight and the context of the rest of the group conspired to make him look good. So this show took place 500 days into the George H.W. Bush presidency. 
John McLaughlin was going around the panel asking best and worst appointment. Freddie Freddie Puke Puke had just nominated the quote-unquote sagacious John Sununu as the best appointment. And Jachamond responded when asked, well, who was the worst? I think Sununu is the worst. I don't think Sununu is going to wear well. I think think already he doesn't wear well with with people of of moderate thought other than right-wing yahoos. Correct. That was me. That was not John McLaughlin. McLaughlin was an intellect. He was a questioner, but he was also dismissive, at times bordering on bullying, certainly a show-off, and it all made for great TV. And he would occasionally ask really good questions. In a post-ideological age, a post-communist age, is the world going to be any less conflicted? The McLaughlin group itself never was less conflicted, that is. It didn't really change much. Eventually, Eleanor Clift was joined by a fellow female every now and again, Caddy Kay of the BBC, primarily. I don't recall ever seeing them on the same panel, however. I could be wrong. An actual black American joined the McLaughlin group every so often. It was usually Clarence Page. But they were unconcerned. They were, for instance, an all-white panel debating the L.A. riots after the Rodney King verdict. Clift and Kondracki just got into it. And when you look at this through the eyes of television, it doesn't look any better. Let me finish. Just a second. I want to finish, boy. Okay. I get to finish my sentence. Yeah, okay. Through the eyes of television, it doesn't look any different than the black townships in Soweto. Oh, Central South LA doesn't look any different when you look at this through the eyes of television. Just a second. Just a second. Are you telling me that a majority of black people, a majority of black people are out there rioting? That is is a a slander on Kondracki was literally waving his finger inches from Eleanor Cliff's nose. Very aggro. Fred Barnes, they turned to Fred Barnes, and he responded to the urban chaos with just religious blinders. The family has broken down, uh, abetted by these welfare policies, where you don't have the same, where the moral values have vanished. And McLaughlin took the opportunity to excoriate, of all parties, the English for daring to lecture America on race. The Nottingham riots, the Manchester riots, the, the skinheads. Remember, remember when they went over exactly. to Belgium look, and the soccer riots? Look, I 60, see, people, I, 60 people were killed in those riots. Right, a, few, a few Turks show up in Germany right. and, they, and everybody shaves the hair off their heads, right? And start Packy walking bash, around with, with, with Nazis. Wow. It was a different time, an insane time, but that was the discourse back then. So maybe hearing this, if you're a young person, maybe you understand a little bit why Hillary Clinton would say some words that now seem unwise and insensitive about super predators. This was the tenor of the time. This was the discussion that America was dealing with. John McLaughlin did not lower the discourse. He certainly didn't raise it, but he reveled in it. He had a good time with it. It was cranky, combative, and often incorrect. But he was thoroughly entertaining. John McLaughlin died at the age of 89. And you know, I say this fondly when I wish him bye-bye. That's it for today's show. The GIST's producer is Mary Mary, quite contrary, Mary Wilson. Slate's executive producer... Why ask why, Steve Licht, hi. The chief content officer of the Panoply Network 
is Andy the fig trees in the Alameda Gardens, Andy all the queer little streets, Andy the pink, Andy blue, Andy yellow houses, Andy bowers. The gist. Wrong. The answer is Special K and Banana. Oomperoo, dapperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening. Rose Gardens and the Jasmine and the Geraniums and the Cactus and the Gibraltar and